Welcome to New Books and Political Science. My name is Heath Brown, and today I have the real pleasure to talk with Jennifer Stromer Galley, the author of Presidential Campaigning in the Internet Age. Jenny, how are you doing today? I am doing great. Wonderful. It's a, such a pleasure to read the book. This is the um, third, uh, sorry, the fourth in this digital politics series. Uh, we've had the chance to, to speak with three other authors, and this really does. Um, I think, add to uh, this really great series. Before we get to your book, maybe you could talk just a little bit about um, who you are, uh, where you are now, where you've been, and and, uh, something uh, a little bit about your background. Okay. So that's always a hard thing. Where do you start? Um, So I am currently an associate professor at Syracuse University in a school of information studies. My background is communication. Um, At my heart and core, I'm a communication scholar with a really strong interest in how communication technologies shape the way that we communicate. Um, I... uh, have been interested for a long time in how political campaigns are using the technological infrastructures that are, you know, we think about loosely as the internet, how they use them for their strategy work of campaigning and what that means for citizen involvement in the political process. Your involvement in this series, uh, I'm always very interested in how people um, get, get, get into a, a series. Um, and, and having talked to a couple of the other uh, authors, uh, uh, Muzamil Hussein uh, being the, the last, um, oh, how, did you, how did you get connected to this? How did you get to, to connected to, to Andrew Chadwick? How the hell did this book happen? Uh, right. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a good question. Um, it kind of happened by accident. I was attending a conference at Royal Holloway University in 2008 on social media something something. Um, <clears throat> Andy Chadwick hosted the conference. He was kicking off, I think, uh, maybe a center or something. I vaguely don't quite remember the details. Um, but uh, Andy... Um, had approached me at a reception and we got talking about the book series and um, he had mentioned that he had remembered that I had published an article way back in 2000 that looked at the 1996 presidential campaign as well as um, some of the gubernatorial campaigns use of the World Wide Web and um, and he, what he said to me is, you know, basically, we have you thought, Jenny, about writing a book uh, that picks up where you left off with that article back in 2000. And at the time, I just had my daughter. She was eight months old when I went to this conference. And um, I had been thinking for a long time about writing a book on this, but I was in an academic department that didn't encourage books, so I hadn't mm-hmm. really pursued it. And so when, when Andy proposed this uh, idea of me writing a book, I, you know, I flew home and mulled over what that would be require if I were to actually write a book about this. And again, think about it, 2008. So Obama, um, uh, that the election of 2008, I followed very, very closely and of course was captivated like everyone else was by the, the, the dynamic, dynamic sorry, between Clinton and Obama in the primaries, uh, as well as what was happening on the Republican side. And so it occurred to me, one of the things that um, I grew increasingly frustrated with are these declarations being made and how Obama was first at any number of things, you know, really first at innovating with fundraising, really first at innovating with the ways of, of organizing and encouraging supporters to promote and work on behalf of the campaign. So I decided that maybe I should take Andy up on his um, 
on his invitation. And so I wrote a proposal and eventually four years later, right, it became a book. It took a while to write this book. I had twins in 2009. So um, that plus a couple of really large research projects delayed getting this book done. Yeah, well, there's a great payoff in, in, in such an interesting um, take on, on a, what is now um, a bit of, of history. It, it feels like, at least for me, mm-hmm. pretty recently, but, it, but these are now histories. And so with, with that in mind, I wonder if you could take us back to 1996. Um, part of what's fun about your book is sort of seeing that digital world of, of the past. Um, where was Internet usage at that point? Um, what did the world of Internet and web and, and politics look like in that time period? Before we even get to talking about how it was used by the, the two presidential candidates, what was the landscape then? Well, back in 96, you know, and for me, it, I, it's weird to think about this as history, right? But it, it is history. Um, you know, I think about my students, my undergraduates, who really, you know, they were, some of them were born, I think undergrads, freshmen are coming in, born in 1996, if my memory is correct on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, it, you know, for them, it's definitely history. And even for my graduate students, you know, back then in 86, only about uh, 20% of adults had access to the internet. So unlike today, where it feels ubiquitous, ubiquitous, particularly with smartphones, um, the only way you could get access to the internet was through a dial-up connection on a, a physical desktop computer, and the connections were really slow. You know, remember that awful modem sound, the handshake. Um, images, photos, right? There's no Netflix, there's no Google, there's no search in the same way that we think about search today. Uh, Purchasing was just starting to be something that people were thinking about being able to do on the internet, but that was also full of concern about privacy, which is kind of funny to think about, um, Mm -hmm. as well as, you know, security of credit card information, those kinds of things. So in, in many ways, the World Wide Web and the internet infrastructure were... Uh, still novel uh, and the ways of communicating and who would be visiting these sites, uh, particularly like campaign sites, really unclear who might be visiting these sites. And in general, those who were accessing the Internet were fairly well educated. They tend to more likely be male and white. So the demographic profile in 1986 of Internet users is quite different than our profile today. Yeah, so in 1996, Senator Bob Dole challenged President Bill Clinton. Um, this, the more senior Bob Dole was, was portrayed as, as stodgy and outdated his advanced age. What about his team's use of the Internet? Was, was it equally stodgy and, and outdated? Totally cutting edge. It's one of the things that fascinated me the most. Uh, so, <laughs> again, you know, who am I? I did my master's thesis on Bob Dole's website in 1986. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and part of what captivated me about Dole's website was exactly this contrast, right? This was an old dude. He, um, uh, he had a great reputation in, uh, in the house, but he was, you know, not, not exactly a dynamic speaker. He tended to be a bit, um, I don't know, paternalistic maybe, you know, when he would speak. And the website used the most cutting-edge, up-to-date, but smart uses of graphics and menu structures and content, especially compared to the Clinton site, which was a remarkably odd uh, site. 
So, yeah, Dole site, remarkably cutting edge. And they did some beautiful things to convey the story of Dole that I also found quite compelling. So even back in 96, campaigns were thinking about how to use their websites to construct their image. So the messaging, the imaging was very carefully constructed. And, um, you know, so trying to counter this image of Dole as this old guy, look, he's got this amazing cutting edge website that is um, using some of the latest technologies and also very carefully and smartly constructing this image of Dole that helped, I don't know, you know, let people into this campaign in ways that otherwise they tended not to be that connected to. Yeah, one of the central themes of the book um, is, is connected to the promise that's offered by the Internet mm-hmm. and, and advocates of the Internet's role in politics. We were led to believe that the Internet was to democratize politics and, and lower barriers and, and even broaden participation. Um, you argue that the promise has never really been met by presidential campaigns. Um, so why is this? Uh, what about the information we are asked to share with candidates at their websites? Um, are campaigns uh, not listening? Were they, were they uh, listening more in the 1996 or 2000 or, or 2008? Um, what about this, the, the sort of on a more theoretical level, the, the promise of democratization that the Internet was supposed to be? So the I say because it's um, it's you know it's tough to answer the the reasons for why campaigns have not used the full interactive potential of the internet is because they don't have any incentive to do so you know campaigns the purpose of a presidential campaign is to win and the work and effort around winning can be broken into image construction fundraising get out the vote efforts trying to identify and target uh, populations of voters that you can then persuade towards your your side and that work um, digital technologies make easier in some ways <laughs> Sorry, mm-hmm. but they uh, the the full affordances of the internet, and so for me, part of what part of the reason why people get a bit starry-eyed and hopeful in thinking about the internet, particularly when you compare it to television or other broadcast media, is that it's so interactive. Um, it it sort of flattens hierarchies. Ordinary people can become, can become content producers. They can have more direct access toward to elites. Uh, email, for example, in organizations early on, you know, once upon a time, if you worked in an organization, you had easy access to the email addresses of the CEO and all of your bosses and the bosses above them. And this kind of sense of flattening, I think, is one of the aspects of the internet that makes people quite excited and hopeful, but campaigns specifically uh, close those particular affordances. They don't use them or they use them strategically so that they can get the best effort out of their supporters to try to win. Now, um, along, the, along those lines, I think sort of the, the general argument is, is, is disappointing uh, to political scientists and uh, commentators. <laughs> but but, but let's, let's look for some silver, silver linings. You, you talked, um, uh, you did extensive interviews, um, not just with the presidential campaigns that won or, or even the presidential campaigns that led, it, led to the, the final round of the, of the contest. You talked to um, uh, some of the campaigns that maybe we've even forgotten. Mm-hmm. So in, in, in that array of interviews, did any candidate stand out for you in terms of um, how progressive they looked at the, the involvement of their constituents uh, via their websites or the other now other tools? Are there any that um, 
kind of kind of got it or get it in a way um, that that might um, offer some hope for the future yeah. uh, about the the two directional nature of uh, of the internet. Absolutely. So one of the the classic examples that every I shouldn't say everybody, but many people know about is the Howard Dean campaign. And I do, in looking across all of the campaigns, and I, you're right, and I thank you for highlighting that, because part of what I really wanted to do in this book is tell the stories of the campaigns that we tend not to pay as much attention to, because a lot of innovation does happen, uh, and experimentation does happen by challengers, the also-rans. Their campaigns are, for me anyway, as much fun to look at as the typical successes that we've all come to expect, which or or know about, which is the Obama campaign in particular. But the Dean campaign, you know, early on, there was a, I don't know, you know, kind of a magic elixir uh, in that campaign that that opened up the possibility for more genuine involvement by ordinary citizens. So you had a campaign manager in Joe Trippi who was very enamored of the potentials of the internet for campaigning. You had Howard Dean who finally found his voice on a, on a message critiquing the Democratic Party for its uh, wimpy stance on the Iraq war. You had the uh, the infrastructure of blogging, which now technologically speaking, blogging should have and could have and in some ways was around well before the 2004 presidential election. But blogging as an instrument of communication by um, uh, journalists and social elites really grew in prominence by 2003. And so when the campaign, uh, when the Dean campaign picked up and used the blog after Trippy came onto the campaign, the blogging phenomenon for that campaign, I think, really opened up this forum for conversation among supporters. No prior campaign at the presidential level had created such a forum for ordinary people to come together and just talk about the candidate. Now, there's a lot of critique, of course, that, you know, I'm sorry, Dean didn't win. And there's a lot of critique about why he didn't win. And why he didn't win had something to do with the web and the internet and a lot to do with a lack of ground game. Um, So there were just fundamental problems with the campaign that really weren't about the internet at all. But one of the things that the campaign staff recognized as they moved through the 2003 and into early 2004 is that all of these supporters who were spending time talking on the blog and throwing out ideas and making suggestions, they couldn't really coordinate well the energy and support of those supporters that would ultimately benefit the candidate. And um, that work of trying to figure out how to better manage, if you will, the supporters and get them on the same page with the campaign more um, uh, in terms of messaging and strategy, that was the challenge that the Dean campaign opened up for campaigns who finally said, oh, maybe we could use the internet to be more interactive. Um, And so out of the 2004 campaign, you see then these efforts in 2008 across a variety of campaigns, not just Obama's, to find ways to open up enough to open up forums for participation, to give participants on these message boards or uh, blogs a chance to feel connected to the campaign, uh, 
uh, but then channel them and monitor them and note who is doing what, who is involved, how involved, so that you can do further targeting and messaging. So you mentioned, you know, when you give, um, when you turn over your information to a candidate these days, they're going to use that information and put it into a massive database uh, that tracks a variety of things about you. So they can make decisions about whether or not to target you further and target you further on particular things like fundraising or having a house party or trying to recruit three friends uh, to register to vote. So, But those are all activities and uh, plans and thoughts and strategies by the campaign, right? So it's still very much a top-down uh, system that we have today. And I think when you think about the, the hope of the internet for democratization, I think some of that hope was that there would be less of that top-down, that there'd be more bottom-up and campaigns um, with the exception, I think, of primarily of Dean, have, have really tried to be bought top down. Yeah, uh, in talking and reading Dan Dan Kreese's mm-hmm. book, um, one of one of the points he makes is about how slow the Republicans uh, had been to to catch up to the the innovations that came out of the Dean campaign and that were ultimately adopted by the Kerry campaign and then finally um, by the Obama campaign. Is there any reason in looking ahead to 2016 to think that it will be the Republicans who are going to be innovating uh, with their use of, of the Internet writ large through now all of these other uh, ways that it plays out? Is there any reason to think that there are um, uh, Republican technologists or Republican candidates who are going to innovate in the same way uh, that Howard Dean did in the early 2000s? It's a great question. I mean, yes, there are going to be innovations. What I, I would not expect that the innovations would be necessarily democratizing or um, uh, sort of organic participatory in the sort of ways that we might have seen in the Dean campaign. But there are definitely the, the Republican Party and many younger Republican stakeholders have been making large noises to um, – some of the old guard in the Republican Party that they've got to do a better job with technology. Um, and I think finally, looking at the organizational structures, the RNC, and what's happening, I think that we will see a much savvier, coherent effort at using the internet for um, mobilizing and organizing in 2016. It'll be an interesting question, too, to see what happens on the Democratic side. Um, whether or not, you know, because the Obama's data file, now I, I don't... There are lots of terms of service. There are, there are you know, kind of legally binding challenges uh, to sharing Obama's megafile with future candidates, um, and so it's, it'll be an interesting question. Um, you know, I, I'm, I try not to um, crystal ball gaze because mm-hmm. I'll end up being wrong. But <laughs> there's still, I think, I, I would predict that the. I feel fairly confident saying that I think Republicans will see some innovative work. The other thing I wanted to just correct, though, is that yeah. Republicans, you know, there is this myth, and it's not entirely a myth. There's truth to it, but there were and have been innovations across the election cycles on the Republican side. They're just not as visible. Um, you know, it, um, the 
the use of blogs in 2004 and in 2008 were not solely um, on the, the Democratic side. Republican candidates were thinking very carefully about ways to use blogs or to really connect with bloggers um, and try to use the infrastructure of the Republican blogosphere to get the names out of candidates and, um, you know, build reputation that way. And, you know, the other thing, too, is that the Bush... Uh, the uh, Bush-Cheney campaigns of 2000 and 2004 really did innovate on the data side, much more so than the, than the Democrats had. So the, the, the targeting work that we now think about as being attributed to the, um, to the Obama campaign, really uh, the de- Republicans had figured out targeting and building large data files and massaging those data files to try to identify particular segments of the electorate to, to speak to, really the 2000 and 2004 Bush campaign had gotten at right. Now, why there was a sort of a slippage, if you will, in 2004, I'm sorry, particularly in 2008 on the Republican side, I, unfortunately, I don't have the answer exactly to that. Um, some of it is about um, who ended up being the nominee, McCain, and he was so hamstrung financially. You know, he agreed to accept finance, um, federal financing for his campaign. Obama did not. And, you know, it's really hard to innovate when you have no money for advertising, right? Still, television advertising is still the focus of where campaigns put the bulk of their of their expenditures. So, um you know, we might have seen substantially more innovation in 2008 if the Republicans had had more money. Yeah. Now, I'm not going to ask you to prognosticate uh, <laughs> about any uh, candidates or or uh, uh, who's going to win. But uh, how about what's up next for you? Uh, what's on your research agenda uh, in the next year, two years through 2016. Yeah, that's what I'm daydreaming about right now. Everybody asks, so what's next? Um, mm-hmm. Well, so after getting bas- over, uh, getting over basking over the globe, actually finally having this book done, um, then my um, part of what I would really like to do is to spend some time looking at the 2000. 14 gubernatorial and and, uh, probably senatorial campaigns. I'm really interested in thinking about what's happening in terms of the messaging that campaigns are producing through social media. So I look at it loosely in the book, but I want to look at it more systematically in the campaigns. Um, I'm really interested in in image construction and also basically the tone and tenor of messaging in social media. There's some research that suggests that over time as a nation, we've become more cynical, uh, in part because of the way the news covers politics. So news tends to focus on who's winning, who's losing, who's ahead, who's behind, which strategies the campaigns or the politicians are using to try to speak to particular interest groups. And that kind of coverage uh, over time has, has, and there's lovely effects research on this, that shows that we are now more cynical. Um, And we do have a remarkably partisan and cynical environment. And I'm very curious how social media, how campaigns are using social media. Are they reproducing those kinds of strategizing messages or are they talking more about issues and about their efforts at, at conceptualizing policy and thinking about what they would do as, say, governor to improve their state? Because I have a part of what I'm curious about is whether or not if people are paying more attention to the social media messages of candidates and what's kind of happening in the the Facebook Twitterverse versus conventional news, are they less cynical? 
And I'm quite mm-hmm. free, I haven't figured out how yet to do this. The other thing I'm really interested in is um, this idea of campaigns finding super supporters and then using uh, both messaging and technological infrastructures to help those super supporters reach out to their networks of friends and coworkers and family members. I'm really interested in whether or not campaigns are thinking that way and how they're thinking about it, how they see the technology helping them to do that kind of connecting work because it's an it's a new it's not exactly a new way of campaigning before mass media campaigning was done more at the at the party level and political parties so when i say before mass media so before 1940 40ish or so let's say so before mm-hmm. the 40s a lot of campaigning was done by parties and a lot of the party work was done at the precinct and local level and so you know you would have you'd move into your neighborhood and you'd know who your precinct leader was for your political party that everybody else was a party member to mm-hmm. and um, and so you could uh, get involved with your political party and have your identity wrapped up in that a bit more. And I'm curious whether or not we're going back to that in some fashion to these technological means. Well, I can't, I can't wait. It, it, it sounds uh, like a very exciting research agenda and, and sounds like it will result in something as interesting as presidential campaigning in the internet age. Yes. Uh, oh, and Heath, the other thought, I do, I'm hoping to do an update on the book. So I would really like to do an edition and add 2016. Great. And, and so when you do, you'll have to come back uh, you'll have to promise to come back because this book is, is such a worthy read. It's published this year by Oxford University Press. Uh, uh, Jennifer's, um, you're able to purchase her book uh, up at the Oxford University Press, I'm sure at a number of other places. Uh, Jenny, thank you very much for your time today. Oh, it was my pleasure, Steve. Thanks so much for having me. This was fun.